So we are reading from one, uh, 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. That's on page 1160 in the Church Bibles. I'll let you find that first. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Father, thank you so much for your word and what we've heard of it over these last few weeks. And we pray as we think on what that means for us now, that you would help us to see your word for what it is and cause our hearts to uh, respond rightly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a confession this evening, which is I struggle to share God's word. As much as I know it's important As much as I know others should want to hear it, it doesn't come naturally to me. I'm fearful of what someone might think of me, what someone might say. I don't like that feeling of being rejected. And to be honest, just sharing the word, it doesn't always feel that impressive. Now, before you drag me away from the stage, denouncing me as some terrible example, May I just point out to us that that was the Apostle Paul's temptation as well. See, he knew sharing this word was hard. Look at what he says about his ministry in chapter 7, verse 5, over the page. He says this, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed on every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. And look over the page. This is how Paul describes his ministry, conflicts on the outside, fears within, and look at how he describes himself in chapter 11, verse 27, over the page again. He says this, I've labored, verse 27, I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. See, that's word ministry for you weakness, struggle. See, Paul knew all too well that sharing this word was going to be tough, and yet he did it. We know he devoted his whole life towards this goal of making this word known, and the question is, why? Why would he do that? Well, because of what we see in this passage this evening, about the Word. See, these verses um, we're going to look at tonight, they're designed to be a defibrillator on the church in Corinth, because the church in Corinth wanted to grow, and it wanted to be impressive. 
But it didn't want to go the way Paul did. Paul was like an embarrassing relative for them. Because his method of just going out and sharing this word, it seemed so weak. And it brought on such opposition and struggle. See, why would they want to go this way? Well, Paul shows us why. Because of what this word is, what this word does, and how this word comes. See, what this word is, why, why this word ministry, Paul? Well, first of all, what this word is. See, um, I want to work back for to the passage, a bit unorthodox, I know, but I, it's because at the end we see the reason for Paul's method. Notice, first of all, what Paul's method is in verse 5. He says this, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, the phrase Jesus Christ is Lord isn't kind of all he says, of course. Uh, that's a kind of catch-all for everything about Jesus. And so Paul is out proclaiming Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension at God's right hand, and his claim on each of our lives. But Paul's ministry can be summed up with these four words, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's it. There's no kind of glitzy presentation, no smoke machines, no business world mission strategy. It is going out with this announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Why is this way? Why not the glitz? Well, you see the reason in verse 6. Uh, the 4 there tells us why. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, the word Paul goes out and dedicates his life to sharing isn't just any old word. It is God's word. And Paul goes back to those first verses in Genesis. Remember back in January, we looked at these, that God spoke and stuff happened. God said, let there be light, and there was light. See, God's words are that powerful that photons come into being at the very sound of his voice. But notice in 2 Corinthians where that word is popping up again. See, verse 6 again, he's made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, God's bringing light not into the cosmos, but into the human heart. And Paul knew this firsthand, didn't he? If you know much about Paul, you probably know about his trip to Damascus. He was on the, the manhunt for a, a people who were part of the early church. And Paul describes himself at that point as a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man. If there was any candidate for being in the darkness, well, Paul was it. The lights were completely off. The blinkers were on. He couldn't see. But then, of course, his journey was interrupted by this unquenchable light. And the light was so strong, in fact, he lost his physical sight. But in a moment of God's irony, he gains his spiritual sight for the first time. And now, he says, that same process is taken place as they make Jesus known to the world around them. See, as Paul speaks, he's not just sharing his word, 
is not just sharing the best thoughts or opinions about someone. He's speaking that very life-creating Word of God, the same Word that brought forth light into the cosmos. Well, it's the same Word He now speaks in the gospel. See, once we get that, I mean, there's no other way you want to do ministry, is there? See, the glitz, the glamour, the beefing up, it, it just seems so out of place because here we see that God's Word is a Word that is powerful, that as we share this Word, well, it creates life. Do you know, when I became a Christian back um, uh, when I was 21, uh, at some point last year, I, when I became a Christian, I, it wasn't the kind of glitz, it wasn't the big presentation that won me over. It wasn't even the clever arguments that changed me. Do you know what it was? It was a friend who said to me, why don't you read Luke's gospel? I remember sitting in my room at university reading through Luke's gospel. And it was another friend who on the phone reminded me, or told me rather, what Jesus had done for me in dying for me. And ever since that point, the ministry that I've seen that works, that stands the course of time, is not the most flashy, not the most impressive. It is where the Word has been taught. But as I confessed at the beginning, that experience isn't always easy. The Word doesn't seem that powerful, does it? Which is why the Corinthian church uh, gets reminded not only of what the Word is, but what the Word does. And that's what we see under our second point. See, Paul here, he's not naive, is he? He knows the Word doesn't get a kind of universal welcome. He's got the scars to prove it. And that raises the question, doesn't it? Why? Why, if this Word is so powerful, does His ministry look so weak? Well, the reason He gives comes in verse 3. He says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. See, Paul's point there is not that everyone sees this word for what it is. It's veiled. It's hidden from sight. You might remember a few years ago, there was this thing that broke the internet um, about a dress. And um, there was this picture of a dress that went round, and uh, it caused a bit of a stir because clearly, you know, it's blue and black. uh, But there were some very strange human beings, indeed, who thought that it was gold and white. Any of those strange human beings in tonight? Yes, a few of us. That is mental. That is absolutely crazy. Uh, But uh, apparently, it is the same dress. There's no trick here. here. Uh, Some of us look at it and see clearly what it is, blue and black. Some of us uh, look at it and see white and gold. Now, discuss afterwards. But there's something of that division here in God's Word. It's not the dress changes, and it's not that the gospel changes, but how we see it is the difference. See, some people look at Jesus and they just don't get it. They see a man who has some very wise things to say, but they look at the cross and they just see one death amongst many deaths. Sure, Jesus is a good guy, but that's it. He's dead. But others, they look at the cross and they see life. They see a man dying in my place to pay for my sins. They see a man who rises to life to bring in a new world and who will raise me. It's the same word. It's the same gospel, but very different responses. 
See, the Word will do that. It's like the dress. It will divide. And if we want to share the Word and want to be liked and accepted by everyone, well, you won't share the Word. Paul describes uh, his experience in chapter 2, verse 16. Have a look back over the page, uh, or verse 15, rather. Here's what he says, "'For we are to God the aroma of Christ.'" among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we're the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. See, Paul says his gospel's like a smell. It's got a kind of marmite-ness to it. Some taste death, some taste life. But of course, it's much more serious than what we spread on our toast. But why the division? Why does it have to be this way? Is there a problem with the word? Well, look at what he says in verse 4, because here he gives us uh, one of the big reasons why this division happens. The God of this age, he says, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, the God of this age is not God himself. It's the one who opposes God. See, remember when we look back at Eden, we saw, didn't we, that the big battle there was not between sort of warring armies or warring gods. It was a battle over a word. This question, did God really say? See, God declared his word as openly as you could want it. He said, eat from any of the trees in the garden except this one. But the serpent came and asked, did God really say? And Adam and Eve, of course, listened to the serpent's words over their creator's. And it's like that same process happens as we take this word of Jesus out. It's not a problem with the word. The word is powerful. But actually, we don't always believe it. See, the rejection of this word, this division, isn't a failure of God and his plans and purposes. It's a failure of our hearts. Now, when I first heard this, I thought, you know, this might sound a little bit harsh. If we're here tonight and we're still thinking through the Christian faith, you're very welcome. Uh, We like having people here at St. Mary's to do that. Uh, And it might sound a little bit harsh to you that Paul's saying, well, actually, your minds are blind uh, here. But actually, when you think about it, I think this is a real cause for, for encouragement. Hear me on this. Because actually, when you think about it, it is a reason that we can be kind even to those who disagree to us, uh, to, with us. See, if we shared the word and we thought it was all down to us and our power and our ability, well, when people reject it, well, we might think, well, it's to do with us. Or we might think that that opposition is against us. But, but this shows us, doesn't it, that far more is going on that actually this opposition comes from somewhere else. It's not personal to us. It means we don't have to take it to heart when this word is not accepted. And of course, it reminds us, doesn't it, that we're all in the same boat. None of us can look with pride on anyone else thinking, well, we're better, we worked it out, we're more clever. It's entirely God's mercy, like he did with Paul on the road to Damascus, shining lights into our hearts So how does this help us? How does this help us particularly with my question at the beginning when I struggle with God's Word? Well, as we finish, I want us to see how this mindset then trickles down into our method. Uh, Paul speaks about his method in verse 2. He says this, "'Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways.'" 
we do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. See, there's no sales technique, there's no glittery presentation, no hidden terms of conditions kind of smuggled in. Rather, Paul sets forth the truth plainly. And it makes sense, doesn't it, if we understand what the gospel is. If it is God's life-creating word, well, then we don't need to smuggle anything into it. It is powerful in and of itself. Um, I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but obviously one of the most famous paintings in the world, if not the most famous painting, is this, the Mona Lisa. I went to see it in France. I wasn't blown away, to be honest. But then, since then, I've watched a video on it on the YouTube, and um, it is absolutely fascinating. For about an hour, this video was on, just dissecting what was so impressive about this painting. Did you know, for example, the scenery at the back isn't level, and it kind of means that you look through the painting. Uh, Is she smiling or not? You look at it, she's smiling. You look at it a bit more, she's not. Um, uh, The eyes obviously follow you famously around the room. Um, Actually, it's pretty impressive when you look at it. Uh, She's smiling back at me now. I thought she was frowning. But you get the point, don't you? It'd be unthinkable for Rob Phillips to come along and think, well, do you know, I can approve Leonardo da Vinci's work here. I can level up the scenery in the background. I I can make sure she's clearly got a frown or a smile. That's the magic of the picture. That's the genius of it. And so it is with the gospel. It doesn't need our improvements. Our job isn't to kind of sell it. Our job is to present it. And that gospel will divide. We don't need to modify this word to make it more palatable or to kind of downplay the tricky parts in an effort to kind of get someone to believe. See, our job is to put it across faithfully. And I don't know about you, I think even if you're not a Christian here tonight, that is such a refreshing thing, isn't it? Because so much of our culture is about trying to persuade us to buy something, to think something, to do something. We hear uh, politicians try and sell us particular truths. We read on Facebook feeds uh, particular opinions. Do you know, I didn't realize this, but on YouTube, um, you'll laugh at me for this, but I didn't realize that when people do product recommendations, they're getting paid for it. I couldn't believe it. I, I bought all this stuff thinking that this person's my friend. They're offering me some decent advice. But actually, uh, they've got an agenda. But actually, here's something very different, isn't it? The church shouldn't be doing that. There's no need to add to it. There's no need to take away from it. No need to omit the truth. It is about presenting it. And I'm sorry if you've ever been part of a church or ever had that experience where there is not being put across to you truthfully and faithfully. And as we have been thinking, we have Passion for Life coming up in a few weeks. We have a chance as a church to declare this word, to, to share it with others. And sure, there are challenges to that. I, I mean, I'm terrified as much as anyone else, uh, things to sort out, organizing, uh, organizing things. Uh, but also, there is a bit of a pain barrier, isn't there, as we share that word with those around us. But as we do, sure, it won't be easy. Sure, there'll be challenges. But we can remember we do not need to be ashamed. We do not need to be fearful. We do not need to be worried at the response. Because we have a God who has said, let light 
shine out of darkness. Let's pray. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting the truth plainly. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that this Word has been passed down to us. And we pray for forgiveness when we um, so often don't feel uh, that this Word is as impressive as you present it to us. Please forgive us for that, Father, and please help us to be those like Paul who proclaim it despite the challenges of doing so. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, thank you for your questions. Uh, that's really great to see people engaging with the passage. I have to put the glasses on to ask them, sorry. Um, so, uh, so, Rob, we're going to start with the, the first one. Um, so it says in our passage in verse 4, if the minds of unbelievers have been blinded, how are we to help them to see the gospel clearly? Thank you very much. Um, so uh, I didn't get a chance to talk about this, but basically the bit that comes before chapter 4 explains that transformation. So if you look back to 3 verse 18, uh, he says this, and with, um, uh, sorry, uh, da, 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 uh, verse 16, but when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. There is so much in that verse, is unbelievable, which is why I didn't chew it off. But basically, the nub of it is uh, that actually it is the Spirit, as we hear this word, that unveils us. So uh, how do we help people? Well, sharing that gospel. Now, it's not a kind of robotic thing. We don't just go, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and it'll work. But it's having confidence that that word, as we set it forth plainly, as people hear it, that actually some will go, by God's Spirit and through His grace, be transformed to believe it. Great. Thanks. And then there's a question about uh, Paul. Uh, you mentioned him on the Damascus Road being blinded. Yeah. And the question says, before the Damascus Road, wouldn't he have known the Scriptures inside and out? And so what's the difference for us and the Bible? So do I need that kind of experience to come to faith or to be changed by God? Um, no, you don't have to go to Damascus. Um, why not? Um, yeah, I mean, it's true. Paul knew the Bible in and out. Um, he would have known the Bible far better than I would, or any of us, I'm sure. Um, but the question is, what you mean by no? Um, Jesus says some very chilling words to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, which kind of haunt me as I hear them, because he says this, um, uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 39, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life, these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. So the problem wasn't Bible knowledge at all. Uh, the problem is whether they came to Jesus. And uh, for Paul, yeah, he, sure, he knew the law inside out. He could teach others. But I guess if he was here, he would be saying, yeah, but I didn't see the whole point of it, which was Jesus uh, himself. Um, do I need that sort of Damascus Road experience? Well, no, lots of us would have grown up as Christians. I mean, I had my particular experience. I wasn't on the road to Damascus. I was kind of on a road in Bristol, uh, but um, there was no light. Uh, but um, lots of us will grow up in Christian families. That might be a kind of gradual dawning. 
Uh, we shouldn't search for that one-off experience necessarily. Uh, but all of us, if we look back, have to say that God's Spirit has given me life. Um, and you know, whether that's being taught by my parents and hearing that word and gradually coming to a realization, if it's like me looking at Luke's gospel, or it's like Paul who knew those scriptures, he just needed Jesus to say, come on, yeah, uh, that, you know, that it happens in different ways. Great, thanks, that's really helpful. Or oh, there's a question that snuck in at the bottom, which might be, it says, does the word mean Jesus or the Bible or both? Both, that. both. So Jesus is the word in the flesh. So God's word comes, the trouble is to say more on this, it gets more complicated, but basically God's word is the Bible and Jesus is the personification of that word. He is that word with us. And so there's not two words. It's not like Jesus disagrees with the Old Testament. It's all one word, but we see that word most clearly in Jesus. I'm probably going to stop there okay. before I get... That's fine. Yeah, but basically both. That's yes. fine. So the Bible is all about Jesus. Exactly, yeah. I'm... So, yeah, no, that's helpful because it's not... There's some bits about the Old Testament and then suddenly Jesus takes it off in a different direction. The whole point of the Bible is... The whole point of the Old Testament is gearing us up for Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's, it's his word still. But then when he comes, we're, we're able to see, ah, it's you. Uh, and then the rest of the New Testament tells us why that's the case. Great, thanks. Need on. So um, this last question says, thanks for explaining the role of the life-creating word in conversion. Given this is how the word affects the heart of unbelievers, what does this mean for the word's place in our lives as Christians? So I guess, what does it mean for us once we've been converted? Yeah, yeah. So um, even though I've talked about conversion, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, it's not that clear. It's not that neat. So it's not that God's spirit works to convert us and then, you know, get on with it yourself. It's actually that, that same spirit who transforms our hearts continues to, to transform us. Um, there's a, you know, verse 18 is wonderful on this. Uh, it's very rich, uh, but actually I think you can see it there where he says, and we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness. So not had been transformed, not will be transformed, but are being transformed into his likeness. And there's a kind of Eden thing going on here that actually we become like Christ. We become, in some sense, human. We become the image we were meant to be. Um, and he says that it happens with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, um, the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that, uh, you know, that's just the firing gun for a life where, you know, there'll be ups and downs, of course, but God, by his spirit, changes us to be more like Christ. And one of the beautiful things about being part of a church with different ages is that you see, you know, those people who are perhaps towards the twilight just reflecting that, which is great. Yeah, great. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. That's really helpful. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for your questions. Thanks for your questions. Um, and we're going to turn to a time of prayer now.